You are in the first class session of Hermeneutics 101. Now, you're going to be in the corner in a second. Before you faint at the big words, uh, it is a Greek word from the word hermeneuine, which means to interpret. And a hermeneuticos is one who is skilled in interpretation, which is what I hope all of us will be by the time we're finished. Hermeneutics, in short, is simply the study or the science or the method of interpretation. Uh, it is a study of the greatest importance. In fact, I think we can say that it is a foundational study to everything else, because after all, how can we make a single statement about the doctrines of the scripture or the commandments of the Bible if we don't know how to understand what it teaches. And a minor, a seemingly minor or trivial error in our method of interpretation can magnify itself into false teachings of the greatest proportions. We can be robbed of our comfort and of the instruction of biblical truth. We can plunge ourselves and others into darkness or damnable heresy and fatal sin. Second Peter 3.15 says, Peter says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. And in his letters are some things which are hard to understand, which the uneducated and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do also the other scriptures. This is not merely then an academic issue. It is a moral issue. It is a question uh, the nature of which may even involve a man's judgment before God. James says, My brethren, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18:20, the prophet who shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, even that prophet shall die. So to understand the rules of interpretation, the rules which are derived from the scriptures themselves, uh, this is not an academic question. It is a moral question. It is a vital question if we are to evade twisting the word of God to our own destruction. If we are to avoid the stricter judgment and the punishment of the one who would presume to speak a word in the name of God which he has not commanded. But before we get to the practical experience 
of discerning, understanding what is correct and what is incorrect practice in how we interpret the scripture. There is another question that presents itself almost immediately. And that is the question of what is truth? You all remember, I'm sure, uh, as, as Jesus stood before Pilate and answered or in some cases did not answer the questions which Pilate put to him. And Pilate finally, in frustration, said, are, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say that I am a king. I was born for this purpose and for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. So Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, for a, it's a legitimate question, especially from the background that Pilate would have been from in Rome. A legitimate question to ask, to ask ourselves. Now, one man might come forward and say that truth, truth is found through reason. We must be reasonable people. We must, we must think we must use our minds and all of the power and faculties of our minds. And we must ponder the great and weighty questions of life. What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? What is he like? What is the, the fate of man? What happens after death? How should we live? These are great questions which we should put our minds to and think and, 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 and ponder and weigh and evaluate. And in this way, through careful, rational thought, we will arrive at the truth. And so we have the great, the great philosophical traditions of ancient Greece, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, or, or of uh, modern Europe of Hegel and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, these great thinkers who thought and wrote so seemingly profoundly about these questions. But of course, if we if we look here to find what is truth, we almost immediately run into a, a really big problem. Which is they all contradict one another. I mean, I mean, which is true, free will or fatalism? Shall we become Stoics or Epicureans? Is that which we can see and touch what is real, uh, what is called materialism, or is there something beyond it, which is what is really real and what we can see and touch really isn't real? Shall we become a Platonic or Aristotelian? No way to judge, is there? You can think about it all you want, for as long as you want, and you'll be just as confused as you were at the beginning. And so it is no surprise that the judgment of the Lord is that the world, by its wisdom, did not know God. Couldn't find Him. Think all they want. Ponder the great issues of life. Intensively study these things. And they never found truth. Now, another person comes forward and says, well, the problem is that reason is not the answer. It's the problem. We must stop thinking. Thinking, you see, blocks true enlightenment and understanding. Truth is something to be experienced, not discovered. So stop thinking. Clear your mind. Empty your mind of thoughts. 
And, and when you have achieved this emptiness, then you will find harmony with the universe. Then you will have understanding. It, it, it will flow, flood into your mind. And so we have the great Eastern traditions, the native traditions, Zen, meditation. We have the, the seeking of altered states of consciousness through the use of hallucinogenic drugs like peyote or LSD. All in an effort to get rid of thought. No thinking, experiencing. And then you, 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 you find the truth. But, but in the final analysis, we have a problem here too, because first of all, truth turns out to be not propositional, not something that you can say, not something that you can write or put a handle on or identify. It turns out to be something you experience, something you feel. And we run into the same problem as before, which is that for every, every tradition of mysticism, there's a different guru, a different philosophy, a different pathway. Which one is the right one? How do we even know if we are there when we're there? If there's no way of judging truth. So mysticism doesn't seem to work. Reason, thinking, pondering these things doesn't seem to work. Well, now, roughly the... Uh, middle of the 18th century, we had the rise of, of the Enlightenment, and we have science, the great beginnings of science, as the way to truth. You see, they would say, we're still dealing, these other people are dealing in, uh, they're not dealing in facts, they're not dealing in evidence, they're not dealing in hard things that we can lay a hold of. We must have proofs. We must have facts. And so we begin with observations. We look around us at the world and we make observations, measure things, analyze things. And then we develop a hypothesis from our, from our observations and we, we conduct tests, controlled, careful, scientifically proper tests. And then this leads to a theory and then we publish our theory and other scientists review it. And then they replicate our, our tests and if they, can be, if they can be repeated with the same results, then we arrive at some hard truths, some facts. But of course... And then there have been great men of science, Newton to Einstein, Mendel to Feynman the physicist, men who've devoted their lives to this cause. But of course, we're limited to what is observable and testable in our search for truth through science. Can you observe God? Where is he? Can you measure him? Can you, through science, measure what pleases him? Can you find the soul? Has it been weighed and quantified and, and analyzed and dissected? What is the condition of men after death, other than what happens to their bodies? What is right and wrong? Will we, will we determine this through a test, uh, through, through a scientific study? So the really great questions are completely removed from the realm of science. And secondly, science always ends in theory, never absolute truth. Carl Sagan, 
who I think can be safely taken as one of the preeminent philosophers of science of the 20th century and, and who was a very honest man as, as far as uh, he went, wrote this. He said, uh, humans may crave absolute certainty. They may aspire to it. They may pretend to have attained it. But the history of science, in, in which he put all of his faith, the history of science teaches us that the most we can hope for is a successive improvement in our understanding, learning from our mistakes, but with the, the understanding that absolute certainty will always evade us. We will always be mired in error. Well, that's hopeful, isn't it? We will always be mired in error. Obviously, we're not going to find our answer to what is truth from science. And of course, then there's another group that comes forth and says, see, what you've missed, you've missed the, the mysterious powers of the universe that give us these answers. Science is looking in all the wrong places. We must, uh, the truth is there for those who will believe. The forces and the powers of the universe will reveal it to us if we follow the ancient methods. And so, we have necromancy and witchcraft. We have the seers and the psychics. We have the tarot and the Ouija and the horoscope. Things of this nature found in every culture from as far as archaeology can tell the, the beginning of time, just about. The black arts, the occult, searching for truth that is mystical, yes, but obtainable by certain special methods which rational scientists have rejected. But once again, we're back to the same old problem. Which method will we use? Are we going to call the psychic hotline? Which psychic hotline are we going to call? What happens if the second psychic hotline contradicts the first psychic hotline? Which one is fake? What happens if our tea leaves differ from our horoscope casting? And so God says, let now the astrologers and the stargazers and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from these things that will come upon you. Behold, they will be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not even deliver themselves from the power of the flame. So... It would seem that in spite of all of their claims to mystical, special powers, the practitioners of the occult cannot help us in finding the truth. And then there is perhaps one final group of people. And these are those who say that the truth is what has been believed always before. The things which have stood the test of time the teachings of our, of our elders and of our fathers, the traditions. These are the things in which we can find truth because it is tradition that brings stability to a society. It is tradition that brings order to a culture and to a world. But of course, which tradition will you choose? Will you choose the 1950s? Will you choose the 1850s? Will you choose the 1350s? 
Will you choose Europe? Will you choose Africa? And if you choose, what guarantee do you have that your tradition is right? I mean, there are some, uh, there are some ancient ancient special traditions that have been widely honored throughout the world, such as uh, human sacrifice. Human sacrifice. Ancient tradition. Ancient tradition. Many cultures practicing it. Ancestor worship. Ritual suicide. Japan has a tradition of both going back probably at least a thousand years. Maybe more. Two thousand? Three thousand? Who knows? What about burying the living together with the dead? Practiced in Egypt several thousand years ago for a very long period of time and in many cultures. What about uh, burning men's wives at their husbands' funerals? Unfortunate if you're the wife, I suppose. <laughs> but, but yet a tradition that crosses from India to the Norsemen. And, Thousands of years old, highly regarded, honored tradition of sending men's wives on to the other side with them when they have the misfortune to die. Which one? Which one will we choose? There is a sense in which we can say that history can teach us nothing. So how then do we know the truth? What is the truth? To put it in the shorthand, God is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. God is the truth. Anything that is contrary to God is a lie. Where do we learn, however, of who God is so that we can know this truth? We learn in his revelation of himself. Ephesians 1, Paul was praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, you would know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. The revelation of the knowledge of him. The truth. We learn of the truth when God reveals himself. But where has God revealed himself? Some would say, well, God, God has revealed himself in creation. After all, Romans 1.20 says the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his godhood, so that they are without excuse. So, we say that God is revealed in the creation, and we can know him through the creation, indeed. Has anyone discerned his trinity recently through the creation? His omniscience? His omnipresence? Has anyone discerned that man is in sin through the creation? Or that the Lord of heaven has provided his only begotten son to be believed on, that they might have eternal life? Has anyone discerned by examining their shrubbery outside that there is a certain and final judgment which all men will fall into except they repent? No. There is a God that can be discerned. He is powerful. 
that can be discerned. You are without excuse if you do not acknowledge those truths that are revealed so obviously in that which you can see with your own eyes. But it is a tiny, tiny revelation compared to the extent of the truth that even we must know just to be saved. Perhaps a person would say, well, God reveals himself to me in my conscience. Because Romans 2 says that we show the work of the law written in our hearts when our consciences bear witness and our thoughts uh, accuse or excuse one another. But would you not agree with me that your conscience is often confused about just what is right and what is wrong? Does your conscience reveal to you the way in which God is to be worshipped? Does your conscience reveal to you the true work of God, which is to believe on Him whom He sent? Does your conscience reveal to you that which is true of God and that which is a lie invented by men? Conscience certainly reveals to us a kind of uh, outline of the law of God. It certainly reveals to us a kind of basic system of morality that testifies that men have a sense of right and wrong and really innately know that there's going to be a comeuppance for the wrong. But that's about it. So where then does God reveal himself? His word. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Jesus talking. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And this brings us to our very first rule for Hermeneutics 101. Sola Scriptura, one of the great cries of the Reformation. Faith alone, sola fide. Grace alone, sola gratia. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. The truth is in the Word of God, and the truth is only in the Word of God. Let's, let's give ourselves a, a brief definition of this, of this doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone reveals to us doctrine and duty, truth and law, what we must believe and what we must do. Scripture alone is instructive in these things, and Scripture alone is authoritative in these things. Scripture is the source and Scripture is the rule. Now we can see this doctrine set forth uh, by example all over the Bible. By what standard were the prophets of old to be judged. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So the prophets were judged according to the written word of God. When Jesus wished to direct men to the place where they could learn about Him, where did He direct them? 
He said, search the scriptures, for these are they which testify of me. When Jesus wished to teach of himself, what source did he go to? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus gave men understanding of the truth, what is it that he opened and revealed to them? Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. When Paul was to preach his gospel, where did he preach it from? It says in Acts 17, Paul, as his manner was, went to them and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. When those who heard Paul's teachings decided to judge whether or not they were the truth, where did they look? The Bereans received the word with readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things that Paul preached were true. What is it that is able to make you wise unto salvation? The Holy Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.15. From where do we receive hope? Through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, Romans 15.4. Why do men make errors about God? On the authority of Jesus Christ, you do err, or make errors, not knowing the Scriptures. So, all over the Bible, by example, we see this standard held forth again and again. Where are we to find truth in the Scriptures? Where are we to learn of the doctrines of God in the Scriptures? Where, do we learn, where are we to learn what God requires of men in the Scriptures? Where are we to judge those who come forth proclaiming to be teachers of the Word and prophets of the Most High from the Law and the Testimony from the Scriptures? Where do we find salvation in the Scriptures? Where do we find hope in the Scriptures? What keeps us from sin and error? It is the Scriptures. And as if this example were not enough, which it ought to be, there is the explicit claim, the direct, uh, unarguable claim of Scripture itself. In a verse which you could probably all quote from memory, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for evidence, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, in spite of how this verse has been normally used in our modern controversies, its main point is not to teach that the Bible is inspired. It certainly does teach that. All Scripture is God-breathed. There it is, plain English, plain as day, no denying it. All Scripture comes from the Spirit of God. But that's not the real point of this passage. The real point is to teach about the comprehensive nature of Scripture's instruction and the complete sufficiency of the Scriptures to accomplish the purposes of God. Two separate doctrines, really, that inspired Scripture is comprehensive in the nature of its teaching. 
He says it is profitable for doctrine, for didaskalia, for teaching. It's profitable for what's commonly translated reproof, but is perhaps better translated proof. It's, it's in a sense, the, the opposite of, of doctrine. Uh, it's the evidence by which a thing may be tested. It's, it's kind of a negative look at it. It's, it's profitable for, for positive instruction, and it's, positive, it's, it's profitable for, for, for showing why something is erroneous. For the, whole, for the whole broad orb of doctrinal instruction, it's profitable. And it's profitable for correction, to restore someone to uprightness in their way of living. And it's profitable for instruction in righteousness, which is paideia, the, which is a fascinating word. We're going to come back to this next week. But it means the entire education and training of a child to bring him to adulthood. The entire education and training of a child to bring him to adulthood. So for righteousness, for knowing how to live before God, the Scripture is, is, is entirely sufficient. It's comprehensive in its detail for what we need to know of God and what we need to know as far as how to live unto God. And it is sufficient in its content. There is a triple emphasis here. It is as if, you couldn't make this any stronger. He says, uh, in order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Three, three emphatic uh, statements. Three strong statements. I mean, what does it mean to be complete? If something is complete... Do you need more? If you have a puzzle and it's missing one piece, is it complete? You may have it translated perfect, by the way, uh, but it, it, it's also it's the, the essence of the meaning is complete. If a puzzle is missing one piece, is it complete? No. If you have your skeleton and it's minus one bone, is it complete? No. Everything necessary. That's what complete means. In order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, not partially equipped, not almost completely equipped, thoroughly equipped. God will not guide us through the wilderness of sin without outfitting us with every necessary tool to survive. He won't take you into the desert of sin and forget to give the water bottle. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not some, not most of them, every good work. Is there some good work Missing from Scripture? Something left out? Is there some sin that we must beware of, of which God has failed to warn us? Is there something God has forgotten to tell us about what is pleasing to Him in what we should believe and what we should do? 
perhaps more bluntly, is there something anyone would like to add to what God has said? Is, is God perhaps not holy enough for you? Isaiah says in chapter 46, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, who declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not even yet done, who says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. To whom will you liken me? says the Lord. To whom will you make me equal? To whom will you compare me that we may be alike? He says to Job, chapter 40, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? If you can, then adorn yourself with majesty. And splendor. Array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. And then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Is anyone here God? I mean, perhaps we've missed you. If, if, if you're here and you happen to be God, would you please now reveal to us the truth? Would you command us, please, about what we ought to do so that we can please you? Would you save our souls from death? And the pit? Would you teach us and instruct us in that which has been forgotten from the Word? We're waiting. If, if none of us are God, then why is it that we blaspheme Him by adding to His Word such as we see fit? Why do we offend Him and become a stench in His nostrils by teaching that He requires that which He has never commanded? In vain do you worship God, Jesus warned the Pharisees, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. How dare, how dare any man or woman presume to teach in God's name that which He has not spoken? How dare any man or woman Presume to require in God's name that which He has not commanded. It is a monstrous crime 
It is an infamous blasphemy. It is a treasonous storming of the throne of God as if to pull Him off because He is unfit and unworthy to occupy that place. It is a high-handed transgression of the very first of all the commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We make ourselves equal to God. We men call our own desires and dislikes His. We cloud His revelation with our own preferences as if they were His commands. We darken His counsel with what seems good to us as if He ought to take advice. If God is God, if He alone is all-wise, and all-knowing and all-powerful, if He alone is most holy and most righteous, if He alone is the only wise God, then is He not both competent and faithful to deliver to us in His Word everything that we need to know about Him and everything that He would have us to do and to be? Is it not true then that we can learn only from Him that which is true? Is it not true that we can learn only from His revelation to us of what pleases Him? And so, we have the first of all rules of biblical interpretation. Scripture alone. And we're going to develop this because uh, we're going to look both more intimately at it next week in its application. And we're also going to see how virtually every rule of biblical interpretation comes right out of this one first rule. And if you mess up here, we are going to see again and again and again how error from left and right and top and bottom comes because people simply will not be satisfied with God's revelation. They must add to it. They must add to it. It is human nature. It is fallen man. Luther used to say that every man has a pope in his belly. Every man has within him the sin and the propensities that would cause him to be as blasphemous and as wicked as the Pope. It's true. Every one of us. So you must beware if you would challenge this first of all rules. For at the closing of the canon of Scripture, God delivers to us a profound warning. As if what we've had wasn't enough. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify to every person that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things, God will add something to him. 
He will add all of the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away something from him. God shall take away his part out of the book of life. That is as much as to say, damnation eternally. And what is true of the book of Revelation is true of all of God's revelation. Scripture alone, if you will hold fast this rule, if you will stay with me as we go through this study, if you will be open-minded to see where perhaps you yourself might be transgressing this first and most fundamental rule of interpretation, I think and I pray and I hope that in the end you will be not as those who need milk, but as those who can take the strong meat of the Word of God. And you will have the tools by which to gain that understanding of the Scripture that will bring true blessedness and holiness and peace and harmony with God and increased love of the Lord Jesus Christ and understanding of who He is. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before You confessing that we are men like all others. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Even with redeemed hearts and opened minds, the sin cleaves to us. It is so difficult for us to remove the stain, to escape the snare. And Lord, even as, even as we come to see, even as most of us in this room, I would pray, would know that Your Word is truth. Yet it is so easy, so easy for us to be influenced by that which, which we accepted prior to your calling us into the kingdom, that which we prefer by nature, that which simply seems right to us. It is so easy for us to pour these things into your word as if they had been delivered from the very throne of heaven. Lord, we know that this does not please You. We know that You would have us wait upon Your lips for Your instruction, for Your Word is perfect, requires no addition, requires no, uh, no further material. Lord, we have what You have delivered to us. And if we would only but make use of it, if we would only deny ourselves, turn away from our own wisdom and our own desires and our own preferences and our own traditions and turn simply to the pure Word of God. If we would seek to understand it in all of its perfections, in its instruction, 
in its truth and its balance. Lord, we, we would be closer to you than we are today. We would be more well-pleasing in your sight. We would know more of your spirit and your grace. We would know more of your Son. We would not quench your spirit as we do. We would not grieve your spirit as it is so easy for us to, to fall into. We pray, Lord, that, that you would bless this word to our hearts, that you would cause us to examine ourselves, whether we truly are willing to submit to the yoke of Scripture. If we are truly willing to submit, turn away from ourselves and our own wisdom and our own pleasure and submit to your word. For Lord, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Your commandments are light to our feet. They guide our path. They lead us to fellowship with you. The truths of your word lead us to your Son, Jesus Christ. And in knowing Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, we know what it is to be your children. In His name and for His sake, we ask these things.